Amigos, welcome to another sensational episode of Chance by Chance. This is a resource for young creators like myself as we learn to navigate the professional field. In part, that takes place through conversations with everyone from educators to artists to philanthropic futurists. And today, the president and CEO of the Great Plains Institute for Sustainable Development, Rolf Nordstrom. He's working to transform the way we produce, distribute, and consume energy to be both environmentally and economically sustainable. He first came to the Great Plains Institute, GPI, as the director of the Upper Midwest Hydrogen Initiative in 2003. 2007 was the year he received his internal promotion and began serving in his current capacity. We dig into that transition at good length during the interview. Before GPI, he was the assistant director of the Minnesota Sustainable Development Initiative at the Environmental Quality Board between 1993 and 2003. Rolf has his master's from Tufts University in International Environmental Policy and Sustainable Development and a BA in English Literature from Carleton College. In 2016, he was appointed by the U.S. Department of Energy Secretary to serve a two-year term on the Electricity Advisory Committee. What a fun episode this was. We learn about GPI's mission to usher in economically and environmentally sustainable energy systems, mimicking the elegant closed loop cycles that are found in natural systems. Rolf talks about how he made his way from Shakespeare over to GPI. He talks about adjusting to leadership, what makes a strong and effective leader. Rolf distills the secret sauce to brokering agreement between disparate interests. You'll learn how to use transformative scenario planning in your own projects and life. Rolf shares a story about his first job after college, which was working for a member of Congress. We hear his vision of a hopeful future, some excellent recommendations for applying to jobs, and so much more. Be patient with this one. It's one of the longer interviews, but there are gems strewn all throughout. Rolf was absolutely amazing. I've come away from this one still processing everything he provided me, and I have a feeling you will be doing the same in a few days or weeks time. Before diving into the interview, I want to say thank you to those of you who have signed up for the newsletter. It can be found at chancebychance.com, and also to the Patreon supporters who have been sharing some of their resources with me, allowing me to dedicate more time to this project. Thank you to Josh Johnson for providing the opening track to this podcast. You can find more of his tunes at Saxophone Capone on SoundCloud. And everyone, please enjoy my conversation with Rolf Nordstrom. Rolf, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Chance. Thanks for having me over. It is a... uh... Similar to when I talked to your son, Eric, we're sitting in the same room. It's a gorgeously sunny day here in St. Paul. It is lovely. Yeah, I just, I just caught on to that, uh, to that connection. Let's talk, to begin, about Great Plains Institute. Give a brief summary of the organization's mission and the day in the life for you over there. Nice, I'd be happy to. So, uh, actually, our legal name at the Secretary of State's office, if you were to check, is the Great Plains Institute for Sustainable Development, Hmm. Inc. So maybe me (laughs) saying that out loud uh, explains why we go by Great Plains Institute, because that's kind of a mouthful. Hmm. But our mission, our reason to exist, is to try to usher in as quickly as possible an economically and environmentally sustainable energy system for humanity. 
It's uh, a lofty goal. It is a pretty ambitious yeah. goal. And, uh, and we can talk more about how exactly we pursue that ambitious goal. But the organization has been around about 20 years. Not about. In fact, this is our 20th anniversary this year, in 2017. The organization predates me a little bit, but I've been there since 2003. Answering the day in the life question is actually super difficult because it's actually one of the things I love about the work is that no one day is quite like the one before it. Really? Or the one that will come. I mean, it has some common elements. Yeah. So sort of like, and this is going to make it sound much more boring than it is, but my day is filled often with some combination of email, phone calls, <laughs> meetings, and writing, and and often and punctuated by public speaking events. So, I, I mean, I suppose if anybody boiled their day down to like sort of the archetypal things you do, it might sound similarly that's, boring. That's the core of it, yeah. But the... Um, but the content that sort of fills those different activities, it's different every single day. And we're constantly coming up with new projects to do. So, yeah, it's difficult to give you. Some, you'll just have to swing by sometime and watch me all day. <laughs> A day in the life. A day in the life. Well, to hone in on one aspect of this, you are president of the organization. How did you step into that role after joining on and yeah. what skills have you been able to hmm. bring to these yeah, that's a great question components. that's a great question so maybe i should start by saying i did not my quest after graduating from college was not you know i need to figure out how i can become the ceo of a nonprofit. i'm not the kind of person that had a, a five-year plan and i'm not sure if i'd had one that i could have followed it <laughs> so uh so i i have ended up in this role I don't want to say accidentally because I've made conscious choices all along the way that I think led to this, but I guess I'm just saying it wasn't part of a master plan mm. that I find myself in this role. Although I love the job, it's actually the best job I've ever had. I actually studied English literature as an undergraduate in college. That was at went Carleton? To, went to Carleton College, mm -hmm. which is my hometown. Uh, I did a whole bunch of things in between, which I won't bore you with at the moment, but I realized I was dangerously close to becoming a Shakespeare scholar interestingly, had a scholarship and everything. And I decided, actually much like you when we were talking, that, that I thought that's not... I had very romantic notions of, of changing the world for the better. And I didn't think after several hundred years of people writing about Shakespeare that there was going to be a whole lot I could add hmm. to that conversation. So I didn't do that. Did a whole bunch of things in between and then decided if I was serious about... I was interested in... Um, international environmental policy. I was interested in fixing the ozone hole and reversing biodiversity loss and doing something about climate change. And I decided I'm going to have to go back to school for that. Hmm. English literature, while I loved it, is not going to cut it. So I, <laughs> so I searched around for programs that had that sort of international orientation and had a challenge finding any that seemed like they quite fit. But I found uh, Tufts University, which is just outside of Boston, not only did they give me a little money to go to graduate school, which was important, but they allowed me to cobble together my own master's degree program hmm. with sort of a foot in two canoes. It was uh, one school called the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and another much smaller program called the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy. Anyway, so I, I, I went to graduate school. I missed my family and missed the Midwest, moved back here in 1993, and I spent 10 years working for something that's part of the executive branch in Minnesota called the Environmental Quality Board. So I came out with a master's degree that's really a policy 
a public policy degree, so I'm not a scientist. So my formal education is, uh, in terms of that master's degree, was in public policy with a real focus on, I was fascinated by the idea of the sustainable corporation. That is, what principles would a company operate by? How would you know a sustainable company if you met one? And by sustainable, I mean economically, environmentally, socially sustainable. Because I'm, I became really enamored with this idea that if humanity is going to prosper long term, mm-hmm. we're going to have to figure out how to produce and consume on this small, finite planet in ways that mimic the elegant closed-loop cycles that you find in natural systems, right? How do we use energy and use materials in ways where it's not just a straight line, where we're taking stuff out of the ground or off the land, producing things, and then throwing them away in sort of a linear fashion? How do we bend that straight line into endless closed-loop cycles where we kind of squeeze all the value out of everything we're using and and we can operate the human economy inside the the natural systems, hmm. uh, sort of the way natural systems operate, without wrecking the place. That that was sort of the that's the thing that really finally I'd found like this is going to be my quest in life, and I didn't yeah. quite know exactly where I was going to put my shoulder to the wheel. But that overall big idea, I thought that's how I want to spend my days. And I'm giving you a long answer to a simple question, but when I, after that 10 years at the Environmental Quality Board, I went to the Great Plains Institute. It was tiny then. This was in 2003. And I was the third person there. It was just me and two other folks. But we had come to an agreement that if we could tackle one big sustainability issue, it was going to be energy. That is, if we could help the world shift toward sources of energy that are clean and affordable and reliable and in the fullness of time inexhaustible. In other words, if humanity had access to affordable, clean energy, it would actually help us solve many other challenges that we face. So that was the one we picked. It's kind of the master resource. You know, it's actually hard to name a human activity that does not require energy of some kind. If you think about the, the big hurricane that hit New York, Hurricane Sandy, and how the city went dark, uh, I mean, almost nothing is possible without energy. Hmm. You can't refrigerate medicine. You can't do surgery. You can't read a book. Well, you can during the day, but you get my point. <laughs> like, if you think about it, people take it. Not on your Kindle. People you take it so for granted. But energy, we wouldn't have skyscrapers without electricity, Yeah. right? Because yeah. you would need, you need electricity to operate the elevator. So if you start mentally thinking in your head, like, huh, what couldn't I do in my life if I didn't have energy in some form, whether it's electricity or something else? It undergirds almost everything. So that's why the Great Plains Institute focuses on energy. And in terms of me stepping into the CEO role, in some ways it was kind of luck and timing because in 2007, which is when I took on the CEO role, because I came to the Institute in 2003, but Mm -hmm. I didn't become the CEO until 2007. What were you working on at that point? Well, I was originally hired at the Institute to launch a new public-private partnership around the use of hydrogen, which is a whole separate podcast, and fuel cells, which are kind of like batteries that never run out as long as you keep providing them fuel. And the fuel for fuel cells is hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. It's what powers the sun. But on Earth, it's not just lying about. It's usually attached to something else. So 
you know, the chemical symbol for water is H2O, hmm. right? Hydrogen and oxygen together make water. It's in you and me. I mean, hydrogen is, is everywhere, but you have to separate it from whatever it's attached to. Hmm. It's a very lonely element, it turns out. It wants, to, it wants to be with others, so it's hard to separate it. But if you can, it's an excellent fuel, whether it's in a fuel cell or you can burn it directly, and it produces zero emissions. The only emissions from hydrogen is water, water wow. vapor. So I had been doing a ton of work when I was at the Environmental Quality Board on hydrogen and fuel cells, and I lost that job, but my good fortune was that the Great Plains Institute was looking for somebody to launch this new public-private partnership with companies and others to look at how hydrogen and fuel cells might play a role in the energy system in the future as a a very clean energy carrier, you would call it, much like electricity. Hmm. So that's what brought me to the Institute, and when the young woman who had my who was the CEO at the time, decided she went to a mid-career program at Princeton and then came back and decided, you know what, I think I want to be a lawyer. So she decided she was going to leave the Great Plains Institute. And there weren't very many of us to choose from. And the board of directors at the time thought, well, should we do a big national search or should we just hire somebody who's already here? And uh, the board chair at the time was the guy who actually recruited me to come to the Institute in the first place. And so he was like, Rolf, I think you'd be awesome in this job. How about it? I honestly didn't quite know what I was getting myself into at the time. But I said, sure. Wow. I'm I'm up for that. How old were you at that point, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mind you asking. So let's see. I was 31 when I took the EQB job. I was probably 40. That seems like a... I was probably 40 by the time... That, that CEO opportunity came about. CEO is an enormous title to step into. Can you uh, just talk a little about that transition? And your organization yeah. has grown since then. So how you how you have branched out? Yeah. Well, and I'm not sure I even fully answered the second part of your your earlier question, which is like, what have I learned? What have I sort of learned from being in this role, and what have I brought to it? Or so I'll try to answer both of those. It was honestly a little bit weird to step into the CEO role having been there. You know, I was there running a program. I was sort of part of the program staff Mm -hmm. for the first part of my time there. So I was working with my colleagues in that way. And then to suddenly be with the same group of people, but now in this quite different position, it felt odd. Yeah. Uh, So that, that both for me and I think probably for them too, it just took a little time to adjust to that new set of arrangements and just me being who I am and kind of my style it's not like uh, in fact I remember when Eric and Eli were younger and they knew that I they found out that I was in this role they said that sounds so cool because you can just boss people around (laughs) Uh, and of course uh, it's so not like that (laughs) at least I think the most effective leaders are not they're not effective because they can tell people what to do Uh, This is at least what I feel like I've learned along the way. I think the most effective leaders are people who kind of invite and inspire people to to bring their best selves to the work and to do it not just individually, but then to do it collectively with other people. Um, So it was kind of a strange transition, but it didn't take all that long. I mean, I would say months and certainly within a year, it felt totally natural then to be in this different role. And I, I learned a lot and grew a lot myself. And I guess my big discovery is that the skills that feel to me the most important 
in this role, aside from, you know, so I have some content knowledge in, in the energy and climate space myself, but no one person can know everything. So being surrounded by other super smart, committed, passionate people is really what has made the, the organization grow. I feel like a big part of my job is more like that of an orchestra conductor, you know, trying to make sure that we are all collectively, that the work of all of us together is adding up to more than the sum of the parts, hmm. if you follow me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that two plus two equals seven or 10 or 15. And that really the skills that I think have made me the most effective to the extent I've been at all effective are what I used to think of as being sort of soft skills. In other words, it's not that I'm a super smart person, you know, or the smartest person in the organization. It's not my technical prowess. I think it's understanding people and having a good sort of a high, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of emotional intelligence. It's actually sure. a book by the same name. But I would say having a pretty high emotional intelligence quotient and understanding what makes people tick and having a high degree of empathy are the things that make me the most effective in this job. Can you give me an example of that emotional intelligence? Sure. So a big uh, one thing I haven't said is really what the Great Plains Institute does. We work on we do three big things in service of that lofty mission that I talked about. One is to develop better public policy. A second big pillar is to try to catalyze in a variety of ways the demonstration and deployment and ultimately the commercial adoption of the most promising zero and low carbon energy technologies and practices, so clean energy technologies. And the last big pillar is to be seen and counted on as a source for really reliable information and analysis, sort of a, an honest broker of the facts, hmm. if you will. Yeah. Whether you're, no matter where you are on the political spectrum or whether you're a leader in the public sector or the private sector, that you would actually look to GPI as, like if we put something out, you'd say, I believe them. The way we work on public policy I think those three things don't really distinguish us. There are a million and one really great organizations, honestly, that work on energy and climate. But I think the way GPI works is a distinguishing feature, which is to pick a difficult energy topic, identify all the interests who need to be a part of solving that issue, metaphorically lock, lock them in a room and see if we can't broker a consensus on a path forward. So think about bringing together people from environmental groups and maybe from utilities and industrial customers and regulators and who knows, it kind of depends on the issue. But the diversity of views that might weigh in on a particular issue and pulling together these very diverse stakeholder groups to tackle a given issue, I think that work really requires a high degree of emotional intelligence. It sounds uh, really difficult. It is, actually. In fact, it's, I, would, I would say, and, and it's, yet it's sort of the secret sauce to the work, because you're trying to get people who sometimes don't trust each other or have a long history of not getting along well, not always, but often, and they come with different worldviews and different backgrounds and different institutional interests that they have, different financial interests sometimes, and you are trying to help them both build trust with one another, get to know each other kind of on a human level, because it's much harder to demonize somebody once you've gotten to know them well, hmm. right? So the work is, is sort of one part, you know, real wonky cerebral policy technology stuff, and maybe three parts 
human psychology. And it's, it's almost like, I mean, I've jokingly called it energy diplomacy. I mean, it's, it's really understanding those group dynamics and sometimes working one-on-one with participants in one of our processes behind the scenes to understand what are their fears about the process or what do they need. So to be effective in that role, in that kind of honest broker role among all these sometimes competing interests, you actually need to have a pretty high degree of empathy, meaning you need to be able to put yourself in lots of different people's shoes at the same time and be able to see in your mind's eye a a path forward or where their interests might overlap. Yeah. You understand what I mean? To throw something into the mix for both myself and uh, I think a majority of the listener base, a lot of that being in the Twin Cities, a very progressive community, clean energy seems like a no-brainer. Can you explain why this is such a polarizing topic for so many people? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, And I guess I would start out by saying... I don't think that, depending on how it gets framed, I would posit that it's become less and less controversial over time. Hmm. And that if you looked at national polling, whether it's Donald Trump supporters or people who consider themselves on the conservative end of the political spectrum, there's actually extraordinary support for renewable energy. In fact, you know, numbers that any politician typically would only dream of in terms of support for for renewable energy. I think it's actually really broad. It tends to be a little bit deeper for Democrats than Republicans, but not really by much often. Hmm. So I actually think the challenge is not so much around is clean energy a good thing or a bad thing. I think the disagreements have mostly been around at what cost. In other words, if they're more expensive than burning coal or natural gas or nuclear power, then you know, we shouldn't do it, or we should do it more slowly, or we should make sure that we're not overly subsidizing it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of messy issues in there. But I think just at the level of, you know, do people, all of the things being equal, are most people in favor of clean energy? I think the answer is yes, which is just good news. So it is kind of a no brainer. And I think that, you know, in answer to, well, why isn't it, why aren't we 100% renewable energy? That's a whole nother podcast. It has to do both with economics and also with just the physical operation of the electricity system, for one. Hmm. And, and also, in the, if you think about the transportation sector, I mean, that's 98% dependent on oil. Now, I personally think that that's going to change and change quite rapidly. I think we're going to see the electrification of transportation. I think electric vehicles are going to take over in a very short period of time. Give me a time frame. I'm going to say that by 2025, 35% of all new cars will be electric vehicles. Wow. Check me. Let's do another. We'll do another interview in 2025. 2025. And we'll just see. <laughs> Fact check that one. Fact check that one. Yeah. Sounds good to me. All right. Looking at these often disparate interests, how, when you're metaphorically locked in this room, I, uh, what, what tactics, let's frame it that way, what tactics do you use to uh, ultimately reach consensus or as close to consensus as yeah. you're able to, to yeah. get? Another good question. Uh, I feel like I'm going to be divulging, you know, our secret sauce here. So your listeners will be launching all kinds of new projects, building consensus awesome. in their own lives. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's almost embarrassing because I think it's going to sound like, duh, that's going to sound pretty straightforward. But maybe to give you a concrete example of a project that we're still doing, but that started three years ago, this is just one of the frameworks, but it's a good example to use. We decided to use this process called transformative 
scenario planning. Hmm. There's something that's just traditional scenario planning, which lots of companies use now, which is a process of thinking about what do we know today that we know is true, and then what are the trends we see in the future? We, whether you're a company or any other kind of organization, how might we chart a course for ourselves based on the trends that we see that would position us to flourish no matter which future ends up coming true. So that you kind of imagine, well, here are all the, here are the range of ways that the future could unfold. The goal of that is not to pick the one you like, necessarily. It's just to say more dispassionately, here's what could happen. And then think about how might we prepare ourselves to do well, no matter which one of those futures came true. The difference in transformative scenario planning is, as opposed to just trying to think, well, how can we make sure that we flourish no matter what happens, here you're actually, as the name suggests, trying to transform what that future is. So the steps to that are you gather the leaders of the system you're trying to change. So check, because we already do that, right? (laughs) GPI, that's just the way... It's not the only way, but it's one of the main ways we work is to bring together these disparate interests. What, what right? does that look like, opening that up? It's an email, hey, do you want to come sit down kind and of, talk about this issue? Almost. Hmm. So to launch this one project that I'm thinking of, we put together, it was probably not more than a two-page, I called it sort of a prospectus. Here's the issue. Here's our starting premises for having this conversation. You can almost think of them as sort of ground rules or starting principles. Here's why we think this conversation is worthwhile having right now. Like, here's what you might get out of it or why you might want to participate. How about it? You know, and I'm making it sound a little more straightforward than it is because there was, you know, yes, there's an email and then there are full of follow-up phone calls and maybe getting together for coffee. But there is a recruitment process to say we would love you to be a part of this process and here's why we think it could be valuable. Okay. So, but let's, so let's just assume everybody's together. Yeah. After you've assembled the leaders of the system you're trying to change, and in our case, for this project, we're trying to reimagine what business utilities are in. So are they just selling electrons as a commodity? Do they become more like an energy services company? The next step in this transformative scenario planning process is that you invite everybody that's around the table. So think about 25 or 30 people. To, and we, we spent a couple of months at this, inviting them all to say what they like and don't like about the existing regulatory system, the existing energy system, and really carefully mapping what they say. Hmm. And it's a kind of discovery process. So that's the first answer to the question about how do you build consensus. First, you need to understand where people are coming from. What do they like? What don't they like? What are they worried about? Uh, what would they most like to see happen? The great thing that happened in this particular case, and sometimes does happen, is we discovered that just about everybody around the table disliked the existing state of things, albeit for quite different reasons. So everybody was somewhat discontent, right? And when you think about it, that's a perfect recipe for making change, because if everybody doesn't like the existing state of things, they're going to be... you got to do something Right? They're going to be up for changing stuff. So that was really valuable. The third step, and there are only five... Next in this process, you develop scenarios for how things could evolve. Again, this transformative scenario planning has this in common with just traditional scenario planning. So you think about, all right, how could the future unfold, given what we know today and the trends we see? And the goal of that, again, is not to pick one and say, let's aim for that one, but just to understand what are the opportunities and what are the pitfalls of these different possible futures. 
And yes, you want to come up with ways to avoid the pitfalls and seize the opportunities, but it's really just to have everybody have a shared understanding about here's how things could evolve. And then the rest of the time in that process is really devoted to coming up with ideas that everybody can get behind for changing the system. And there, it's hard to give a crisp answer to how to find the consensus because it's really, it's kind of an iterative process of both having understood where everybody's coming from and what their interests and needs are, and then over time identifying where those overlap, where, where there's common ground among these interests. And you, you discover that really through conversation. That doesn't sound terribly sexy, but it's these groups often meet regularly, like once a month or you know, on a pretty regular cadence. So they get to know each other as a group. They get to know each other individually, and they travel this common learning curve together. They come to agree on a common set of facts about what's true and not true, about, in this case, the electricity system and the regulatory framework. And through that process of dialogue, you end up finding the group. You help them and find places where they can agree and come up with ideas for how to change the system that would benefit everybody in some fashion. Yeah. So what amount of time are you looking at for these five steps? Process of months, did I hear you say? It could be. Yeah. I mean, I think, it, I think that's kind of a shrink to fit. I mean, you, it could be... Depending on the issue? It depends on the issue. Sure, sure. This one is so complex that it's taken us, you know, gulp. It's taken us three years. <laughs> wow. Three years. But you, gotta, you have to remember that we're talking about changing a regulatory framework and a, a system that has worked more or less the same way for about 150 years. Wow. So you wouldn't expect, really, would you, to change that on a dime. I mean, it's, a, it's been a big conversation because it's really about systems change in the end, and that's, sometimes that's not fast. Shifting gears slightly, yeah. I'm very interested in this transformative scenario planning in applying it to personal life. Mm-hmm. Before we started recording, mm-hmm. uh, you and I had found a similarity in that neither of us me currently, and, and you as you were going through your school, a yes. younger man, knew exactly what it was you or I wanted to do going forward. Mm. So taking this planning and applying it to a personal life, how can young listeners <coughs> determine possibilities and prepare themselves for any of those outcomes? Wow, what a fantastic question. So some of those steps obviously don't apply because you wouldn't be convening anybody sure. other than yourself. Although... I mean, actually, the kind of thing that you're now doing with these blogs and the kind of thing I think other people do when they are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives, uh, meaning, at least this is what I did, I just did a whole series of, I guess you'd call them informational interviews. I just thought about people who are doing jobs that I might want to do and then going and just talking to them to find out what they do. I mean, much like the conversation we're now having sort of like trying on somebody else's suit, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, let me just try, can I just wear your coat for a little while and see how I like it? <laughs> it's just as whole, it was a whole series of conversations like that to get a taste for, huh, what would being in that profession be like? So that's the closest I can come to, uh, just off the top of my head, to that idea of convening, you know, convening the right people, if you will. In this case, you're not convening them all at once, but you'd be going and talking with a, a whole series of people to try to kind of cover your own blind spots, yeah. you know, to hear enough from enough different types of people so that you get exposed to a wide enough array of 
professions Definitely. and ideas. So it's really what you've been doing, it seems like, with your own life post high school. The other steps of that process are maybe a little bit trickier in that, I mean, I guess you, you really could do this. You could take your own set of interests and then spend time researching, you know, what are the trends that seem to be shaping the areas or the issues that I'm personally interested in. So mm. if you were interested in you know, environmental issues or you're interested in technology or you're interested in music, you could spend some time looking at trying to step back from and looking at the trends that are shaping that sector of society. And, you know, you might even write those down and think about, well, so there's a trend towards sort of the democratization of, of music production, right? You know, you don't necessarily need to be represented by a label. The Internet makes it possible for anybody to produce music and go directly to the consumer. There's probably a bunch of other trends, but you kind of get my point. Yeah, you, could, yeah. you could think about what are the big macro trends that seem to be shaping that. And then think about, all right, given what I care about and what I'm interested in and the trends that I see in the space or spaces that I'm interested in, you know, where might I, what, what path might I navigate to find that I could love and be good at? Actually, that, that intersection of what you love to do and what you're also good at is one of the, I guess I'll say, the cultural norms at the Great Plains Institute. That mm. is, we, we try to f help people find where that intersection is for them. What do you both love to do? Like, you never get tired of talking about X. What do you love to do and you're also good at? And to try to spend most of your time at that intersection. When... Did you realize what it was for you? I mean, we, we got the, uh, the synopsis of how you came around to yeah. the board first and then the Great Plains Institute, but was there a, a relationship or a mentor, a, an experience that opened your eyes to the possibility of what you do now? I mean, there were probably a whole series of them, but if I had to pick something, you know, it, it wasn't... There wasn't really a, like an epiphany where I just woke up one day and thought, Eureka, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> but kind of. So when I finished college, uh, as I said before, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to write. And then I, I had always had this deep love of the outdoors. My family had gone often to the Boundary Waters on canoe trips. And mm -hmm. so the place where I felt the most you know, connected to the world and the most spiritual was was in the outdoors. Eric says much the same thing. Yeah. Well, the apple falls not <laughs> yep. far from the tree sometimes. Yeah. But so, but but the funny thing is that it had never occurred to me that I could turn that personal interest and passion into a into a career, into a livelihood until I got this job. The first job I got after college was with a member of Congress, believe it or not, hmm. from Texas of all places. So I suddenly found myself in Washington DC as a 20-something, working for a member of Congress from Texas. And among the things that I did for him was to work on, on energy and environmental policy. And, you know, I would research particular issues, and I helped write some pieces of legislation that got introduced, and a couple even passed. At the time, that was a very heady experience for me. So I would point to that as kind of the transformative moment for me when I did actually have this realization that I could turn what had always been just a personal passion and interest of mine in environmental issues into a career. I mean, it, it occurred to me for the first time that, wow, I could work on energy and environmental policy 
as a job. Yeah. Well, can, can, <laughs> who, who knew? You know, I just did not. I just had not thought of that. Can you give me some idea as to how this arose? How you got this job? Oh, I got the job. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so after I got the job, I'll start by saying after I got the job, yes. probably not a week went by when people didn't call me from Carlton or other people who were coming through school asking, how did you get that job? Because obviously they wanted a job like it. <laughs> and I was always embarrassed to tell them exactly how, because it was kind of like being struck by lightning. Right after college, I did social work in England along the southern coast as part of an, a nonprofit program that's sadly out of business now, but called the Winnant Clayton Volunteers. It was started after World War II to help rebuild war-torn London, but then when that was done, they continued it. And it was an exchange. They would take 25 Americans every year and bring them to England and place them in different social work opportunities. Cool. And then they would bring Brits to the United States and do the same. I got this awesome placement. Spent the summer after college doing that, came back, was unemployed, had no idea what I was going to do. So I was living in my parents' basement in Northfield. I, was, I had actually just come back from the Carlton Career Center, ironically. I think I might have mentioned both my parents were musicians, and my mother, in addition to teaching at St. Olaf, she would teach cello students in our home. So she was home when I got home from the Career Center. She yelled down, Rolf! Hey, there's a note on the kitchen table. You're supposed to, somebody from Washington called, you're supposed to call them back. And I made some joke about Ronald Reagan not calling me at home. He was pres <laughs> president at the time. It's like, again, he calls me. Please stop. So I call, this, I call this number back, and this woman, Suzanne Schulte, who I found out later was his chief of staff for this member of Congress from Texas, had called and was calling to ask if I was interested in a job as a legislative assistant for this member of Congress. How did she find you? Well, exactly. This is, the, this is the natural question. So it turns out that this member of Congress had been an English major himself, and he started law school but then dropped out to run for Congress and won. And he'd read a book somewhere along the line about Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson. The book is called A Path to Power, which I've still to this day never read, but I probably should. In this book, Lyndon Johnson describes how he staffed his congressional office when he was a member of Congress, and it was to hire, quote-unquote, young, cheap talent right out of school. You can work them like dogs. You don't have to pay them very much. Typically, their political beliefs are somewhat unformed, you know, so they're sort of malleable. And it's the perfect way to populate your congressional office. So and this guy thought, bingo, this is exactly <laughs> what I'm going to do. So he had his chief of staff pull out, like, the book of colleges in the U.S., Oof. They made a master list. They started on the West Coast and just worked their way east. First, they just made a master list of schools, but then they would just cold call English departments, sometimes history departments too, but mostly English departments at these schools, and ask, can you recommend any, any recently graduated students? Hmm. And when they got to the middle of the country, and I still to this day don't know exactly who at the Carlton English Department gave them my name, but they called the Carlton English Department and asked, Hey, can you recommend any, any recently graduated students? Somebody gave them my name. They called my house. I called back. I had like a two and a half hour long phone interview, probably about a week later, and I thought the interview had gone horribly. I mean, I was just sweating buckets. <laughs> I remember it so distinctly. I was wearing like boxers and a t-shirt, just pacing around <laughs> my parents' house, having this interview. And I thought, because this guy was, I would describe him as sort of a moderate Republican, and I grew up in a pretty Democratic household. And I thought, well, there's just no way I'm, I'm going to get that job. But that was, you know, it was an interesting experience to go through the interview. Well, about a week later, she calls back at like 8 in the evening, 
which I later found out was more like work hours for this job, and said, well, the job is yours if you want it. I was a little conflicted because his politics were not necessarily my politics, and I thought, should I take this job? Hmm. But I had taken intro political science from Paul Wellstone, who at the time was teaching at Carleton before he was a U.S. senator. And I was like, here's the offer I have on the table. Do you think I should take this job? And he didn't skip a beat. He was like, are you insane? Have you learned nothing? Uh, of course you should take that job. I mean, at a minimum, you will find out how, how the quote-unquote other side thinks. You know, yeah, you'll, you'll, yeah. It'll be a great civics lesson kind of no matter what. You should absolutely take this job. So I was like, okay, I'm taking it. So a week later, <laughs> uh, I was living in a friend's apartment in Washington, D.C., working for this member of Congress. Wow. What did you take away from that experience? I'm especially curious because politics can seem like such a distant thing. We hear all the time, write to your representative, yada, yada, yada. And and those things have their place, but it's hard to get uh, (coughs) this insider knowledge. But you have seen Congress (laughs) in action. The belly of the beast. Yeah, you've seen Congress in action. The belly of the beast. I'm just curious uh, what you've learned about how it all works and how you have utilized that knowledge now yeah. in your current profession, bringing those types of people together. Well, Paul Wellstone was right in that it was an incredible civics lesson. You know, you learn about how, at least I did in social studies or civics class or whatever it's called now, you learn about the branches of government and how it's supposed to work. And <laughs> I, when I was a kid, there was a cartoon called Schoolhouse Rock. That, oh, sure. I don't know if that still exists. Yeah, I saw, I saw it know? in school, yeah. I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. You learn how a a bill becomes a law. And, of course, you know, the mechanics of it are, that cartoon is is reasonably accurate. But I guess the thing that I came to appreciate, a few things. One, even though there are, what, 435 members of the House and 100 senators, there's actually a relatively small number of those folks that are actually making things Happen. And I don't mean the rest are, are useless. I just mean that it takes a while to build up enough seniority, enough relationships to really be effective in that world. Because like so many things in life, maybe most, it's very relationship-based. You know, you need to develop trusting relationships with people to get anything done. I think it's one of the reasons why the member of Congress I worked for, I think, ended up not being super effective because he was a little bit of a lone wolf. He did not necessarily work and play well with others. And I think it's hard to get something done in that system if you're that kind of person. So that was one takeaway, that it's actually a relatively small number of people who who hold the most power, I guess I'll say, in terms of what happens and in what order and what gets taken up and what doesn't. Another big takeaway for me, though, was, was a really heartening one, which is that Uh, And you mentioned it explicitly about this idea of writing to your representative, because it was my job, among many jobs, to uh, to write back to constituents. Hmm. Uh, Wow! What an experience! It was extraordinary. Actually, it really was extraordinary. Both to hear what people wrote, like it never even dawned on me as a kid to write, or even as a young man to write to my representative. (laughs) I'm embarrassed to say that, but it was not like if I had a problem. I wouldn't think I should write to my member of Congress. Mm. But lots and lots of people do. And I, and I would say the experience I had there led me to believe that people should do a lot more of it. Because what happens is you think, ah, what difference is it going to make if they get a few letters? But it's actually the fact that not everybody takes the time and the effort to write. Mm. It means that a relatively small number of letters on a topic 
have a disproportionately large impact. Amazing. In other words, if you're the member of Congress, you look at every single letter, every one letter, and I don't even remember what the ratio is now, but we actually did have a kind of ratio that we used. Like for every one letter, you can assume that there are another, and I'm making this the number up. Yeah. For every one letter you receive on a topic, we should just assume that there are another 500 people that hold that. Because not that, everyone bothers to write it. Because in. not everyone bothers. Wow. So just assume <laughs> that every one letter you get, you know, is represented, actually represents a huge chunk of people who also hold that view. Hmm. And so if you get 50 letters or 100, so it's, it's, I would say it's, it's relative. The number of letters you get on an issue are relative to the number you've gotten on another issue. So it made me feel like, yeah, people really ought to lean in. It's easy to be cynical, especially today, about the political process. And campaigns have, I think, only made people more cynical because it seems very negative and it seems kind of shallow and it seems like it's just brinksmanship. But I think what's really important for people to remember is that this is our means for peaceful change, right? The alternative is either anarchy or taking up arms. And as as many faults as you can find with our system, I think there's a ton to celebrate about it, which is that you get a peaceful transition of power. And, you know, even if you don't like the outcome, it's better than having uh, armed conflict every, <laughs> yeah. every four years. Yeah. And that people leaning in, instead of the response, the natural, quite natural response being becoming cynical and not engaging, I think going just the other direction and leaning in more and writing and calling and being active hmm. is actually the way that almost all change has been made. In almost every instance, any big social change has come from people leaning in more, not less. To steer a little farther down that road, cynicism versus hope. Give me your idea of a hopeful future and uh, the steps you are making and need to make in the future to get there. Mm. What, do you, what do you want the world to look like yeah. for, for your kids and their children, and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, no, that's a great question, especially since, so the Great Plains Institute doesn't tell you much as a name, so the tagline is important. The tagline is better energy, better world. So your question about, like, what, okay, what would that mean? What would a better world look like? In my mind's eye, the world I would like to leave behind, everybody who wants a job can find a job. People have and this sounds funny that I should even have to say this out loud because it should be absolutely expected, but people should have clean water and healthy food, access to, all, to those things just as a matter of course. People who ha would have access to educational opportunities, whatever they wanted to pursue, and it wouldn't depend solely on how much money your family made. People who ha would have access to green spaces no matter where they live. There are neither food deserts nor greenery deserts, if I can put it that way. People would have time in their lives to devote some amount of it to the common good, so that you're not just so wrung out by work that you have nothing left to give. We would have no homeless people, it seems to me, in a civilized society that is as wealthy as ours. I see no reason why there should be people who are homeless. I'm not saying everybody should live in the Taj Mahal, but having basic shelter seems to me the mark of a humane society. I hear you. There would be lots, as I think there is now, but there would be lots of arts options for people's lives. I think that's part of what makes life worth living. You know, people would treat each other with respect, no matter where you're from or what your religion is. 
I feel like I'm starting to sound like John, a John Lennon song, but I, that, that's the world I would want to live. And yeah. I feel like in terms of how to help bring that about, that ends up feeling like such a utopia, especially what's going on around the world. It, it, I think it's easy to seem like, well, that is just never going to happen. But I read a piece not too long ago. This guy had done research about taking the, really the long view of how humans have evolved and was making a pretty compelling argument that we've actually become less violent over time. Oh, this They're is actually, Peter Diamandis, right? Could well be. Yeah. I'm horrible remembering names. But <laughs> he basically argues that there are, believe it or not, I mean, it's hard because we have this 24-7 news cycle now, so we're just bathed in this stuff constantly. Always focusing on the negative. Always. And so you could, you could be forgiven for feeling like, oh my God, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But... He argues that, that there are fewer armed conflicts now, that we actually, humanity is evolving toward being less and less violent. Hmm. So I would certainly say that is part of my, my hope hmm. for, the, for the species, is that we evolve toward being both less violent and also seeing ourselves not as separated by nation state and by religion and by all these ways we like to divide ourselves up, but instead see ourselves as a single species on a planet with all the other species. And what's mystifying to me is that, you know, in the 1960s, when we first put humans on the moon, it was the first time ever in human history where people got a glimpse of the Earth as a whole. Yeah, I, I know the exact photo. Right? Yeah. It's pretty transformative. Yeah. You're like, damn. <laughs> it's the only thing that has this, this, this gorgeous sort of jewel in this inky blackness of space. And you would have thought that that picture would have galvanized us all to think of ourselves suddenly as just a single species. We're not quite there yet, but that is, that's what I hope for. You know, that might be a hundred years or a thousand years, but in terms of the long arc of time, that is my hope for the Beautiful. species. And, the, you know, I feel like all I can do is my little bit. You know, hmm. one lifetime is so brief. Hmm. And you could say, well... It's so brief, and we have such little leverage on that big arc. Like, what's the point? But I, I feel just the opposite. I feel like, well, there's lots of ways I could spend my time on this planet, but I, would, I find it more satisfying, even if it's just a tiny, you know, even it feels, feels infinitesimally small compared to the, the task at hand, if you will. I'm just going to do my little bit. And if everybody does their little bit, then, you know, it'll get better. Do you think that thought process or that disposition is uh, just you as you are and were born? Was, did that come from your upbringing, maybe? Any ideas there? I wish I knew the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I mean, I think it's a, you know, people have been trying to tease apart how much is nature and how much is nurture for mm -hmm. a long, long time. <laughs> it feels like it's an unsettled and maybe, in a way, an unknowable question, at mm -hmm. least in any definitive way. I personally think it's some combination of both. And I say that because, I mean, I mentioned before, I think I did anyway, that I'm the youngest of five, and all of us come from the same gene pool, and we have some similarities for sure, but we're also, you know, we're quite different from one another in other ways. To me, how do you explain that other than that we come to this world, each of us, with some sort of built-in predilections, some leanings, some inherent attributes, hmm. and then our our experiences over time shape those, too, and, and, and act on those. 
So, if, for example, I've often wondered how different my life would be if I were African American hmm. instead of white. I think it would have been profoundly different. I think the opportunities that I had or didn't have would have been different. I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly how it would have been different, but I'm pretty confident that it would have been different. Or if I'd had different parents, or if they'd had a different parenting style, or if I didn't grow up in a small town but a big town. So who knows? I mean, yeah. I think it's yeah. a it's a fascinating question, but I think it's sort of unknowable what makes any one person exactly how they are. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I do think, and this goes to something you were telling me about, that you've spent some time traveling, which I think is an, a fantastic thing to do. And I was aware, even as a kid, of how fortunate I was in this way. But my dad taught at Carleton, and it meant that every four years he would get a leave of absence. He would get a sabbatical from wow. school where the school would essentially pay him to go live someplace else and you know, soak up new knowledge and then bring that back to the college. And it meant that every four years or so, my parents would take, I don't know how they did this, but would take all five kids and we'd go live someplace else. It was often Such in England. As... Well, it was actually frequently was in England, but sometimes wow. it was in Norway. I think one time it was in Switzerland. But my point is just that that experience growing up of living in a country that's not your own. I think even if it's in Western Europe, which people think of as being, you know, in some ways similar, you know, it's part of the Western world. There are lots of cultural norms that are the same. But even so, I think just living in another culture in another place gives you a sense, A, that the world is a bigger place than you might have imagined it to be. Ooh. And that people see things differently and they have different ways of leading their lives and different things that they prioritize. I just think it gives you a different worldview, yeah. almost by definition. So I just mentioned that because I think that's one of probably a whole bunch of different experiences that taken together have led me to hold the views that I do. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think it's not one thing. It's just this strange confluence of factors over time. To dig into what you said about making the most of your brief time on Earth... Broadly, what advice would you give to young people having that considerations themselves? Yeah. It's, you know, you, you have so many years. It's a great big world out there. What is the, uh, the first step or a, a possible couple first steps? I, I guess the first thing I want to say is that I think that the answer to that is almost inevitably going to differ based on your circumstance. Sure. And what I mean by that is, you know, for some young people, and it was true for me, you know, I had the luxury of being able to live in my parents' basement when I didn't have any place else to go, you know, and basically mooch off them. Not everybody is in that position. So for some, I think it's a luxury to even contemplate how they want to spend their time on the planet. They need to figure out a way to get by. Yeah, man, right? that's a good point. So I, I think in a way, and I think about this globally, you know, if there's 7 billion people on the planet, I feel like even being able to pose that question to yourself about like, hey, how would I like to spend my time? itself is an extraordinary privilege. I mean, it's a luxury, right, to be able to even think about that. Hmm. That said, I think if you are that fortunate, like if you're in a place where you actually can think about, what would I like to do with my life? And this is just my own bias. I would say to spend some time thinking about what do you really love to do? I mean, it's going to sound cliche, but it's a cliche. It's become a cliche because there's real truth in it, and that is... If you figure out something that you really love to do and are genuinely interested in, I really am a firm believer that the money will follow. I mean, you can figure out the money part. 
Yeah. You can find a way. You can find. You can maybe even create your own new job or start your own company or whatever. But the hard part is finding out what you really love, and that's easier to say than to do. But I, th- I think that's, I think that's the first step, is to really figure that out for yourself. And in the meantime, you know, I think it's fine to just make a living doing, you know, whatever you need to do to make a living <laughs> as you're figuring that out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Another version of this question, if what you've said about your institute has uh, sparked some interest in certain listeners, where would you direct young entrepreneurs going forward? Just looking at developing mm-hmm. technologies, the expected future in the next maybe 10, 15 years, where would you tell people to focus their And, and their do you efforts? mean that uh, like sort of topically, like what technologies would I suggest they focus on? Or do you mean if they think they have an idea, where should they take that idea or how should they build it? Uh, let's, let's hear technologies first. Yeah. So what do you think is most pertinent going forward if you're excited by sustainable development? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's sort of an embarrassment of riches there because I think we're gonna, we are in the process of reinventing much of what we do and the way we do it, whether you're interested in water or the way we manage solid waste or the way we design and make almost any kind of product. And by that, I mean, like if you were interested in being a a new product engineer, I I would say your quest could be, I'm going to figure out how to manufacture fill in the blank in a way that either that thing can be harmlessly returned to soil when it reaches the end of its useful life, like you can actually compost it. Or if that's not possible, you could unmanufacture it, if you will. You could take it apart, disassemble it so that it its constituent parts could in turn be, you know, either melted down or, you know, made into that same thing again yeah. so that you design a new refrigerator, but you design it in a way that could be taken par- taken apart at the end of its useful life <laughs> and made into a new refrigerator so that it those materials travel in this nice, elegant, closed loop. Or let's say your thing is energy. I mean, there, again, the field is just wide, wide open. Hmm. You know, it could be working on electric vehicles, it could be energy storage, it could be the next best solar panel, but it, it wouldn't even have to be a new technology. I mean, there are so many things that, that need to happen to make those things just the norm. You know, you could become a urban planner and focus on those things. You could be, I don't know, it's just dizzying. Endless, yeah. You could be. yeah. yeah. And, uh, and there are more and more schools, I would say, both business schools and other kinds of schools, you know, that offer this kind of training, that are helping people to develop their skills. That, that leads into the yeah. second point uh, in terms of building up this expertise. Say, uh, let's approach it from the angle of what you would look for at GPI for... Uh, for hiring somebody? Yeah, for hiring somebody. What would you want to see? Well, I'm trying to think about who we have there now. So People come to us with lots of different backgrounds. Some people are electrical engineers or mechanical engineers. I would say most people there, though, have a policy background or some combination of public policy and public policy and technology or public policy and science so that they have a good understanding of both the policymaking world and, in our case, you know, some deep background in the energy system, in various energy technologies the state of play for where those technologies are headed, that kind of thing. But there are lots of other skills there that are things like 
<laughs> the ability to think clearly and critically, the ability to write well, to be articulate public speakers or articulate conveyors of ideas, hmm. you know, the ability to take in lots of disparate information, different kinds of information, and synthesize that in a way that you could explain those complicated ideas to other people. You know, so there are lots of different skill sets, I would say. You could develop those or bring those and have lots of different sort of formal educational backgrounds. Are there demonstrations of those specific skills that you would accept outside of, say, a traditional degree? Is there a way for someone to demonstrate proficiency in that? And what would those options be if, if they do exist? That's a really good question. You know, we haven't been confronted with that, either opportunity or challenge, whichever it is, <laughs> before. So I'm not sure. I don't, know what, I don't know what the honest answer to that is. I think, let's put it this way, though. I think without, without that sort of formal background, what would be needed in place of it is sort of a, a way to... Maybe you would need a series of people who... <laughs> who could basically vouch for you. In other words, yeah. I think a series of recommendations about either what this person has done in other realms, mm -hmm. what kind of person <laughs> they are, you know, are they dependable? What have they done with, with, with themselves? So I wouldn't, I don't know that it would absolutely have to be a, a formal degree, you know, depending on the kind of job you were applying for. And this is something I've learned that I wouldn't have known before, but on the, when you're the hirer, when you're somebody who's trying to hire other people, it's actually remarkably difficult to do well because, hmm. you know, no matter what kind of organization you are, you're hiring somebody because you have a certain set of problems that you want them to help with. I mean, maybe problems isn't even the right way to put it, but, you know, you have some needs, yeah. right? And you're looking for someone to meet those of needs, course. basically. Yeah. And it's so it's a kind of dating process, right? It's a matchmaking <laughs> process of a, of a sort, right? And you put out this job description and you get depending on the timing, you know, you might get dozens and dozens of replies. And it's often a cover letter and a resume. And how on the earth, on the receiver end, how do you sort through that stack? And how does somebody stand out in that process? It's a challenge. And one, one sorting mechanism is, well, what kind of, does their formal background seem to match what we're looking for? Hmm. Do they come with any recommendations from people we know or trust or, you know, that we could at least follow up with. Yeah. Does their cover letter seem well-written and articulate and like they know what we do even, you know, or is it just sort of a form letter like they sent out 300 of these and we happen to get one? Yeah. But the most effective way is for there to have been some sort of human connection, which gets back to my earlier suggestion about, you know, if you're a young person trying to figure it out, man, go and meet with as many people as will sit down with you for coffee because that's I think that's the most effective way to get a job you will love it's not going to appear in the newspaper as a job probably may not but it's that human connection and when you think about it this is not rocket science if I have a stack of you know 150 resumes but four of those people I've met or someone I know has met and said hey you should really sit down with chance like you automatically go to the top of the stack because on the receiver end, they're trying to make heads or tails out of this huge number of applicants who on paper might look really quite similar. Hmm. And it's like, how do you possibly decide 
Well, so having some sort of human connection is one really important way. And I would say this is another thing that, that I did that worked very well for me, but I recognized not everybody would be in a position to do, like just financially or hmm. in terms of their family situation. They may not have this luxury, but I would say if there's something you think you would love to do and you either because you can you know mooch off your parents or a friend or whatever, you have shelter and food for the time being, I would strongly recommend going and volunteering hmm. for that, whatever it is, that entity. You know, if you want to be with a band or you want to, whatever it is you want to do. A trial period. Yeah. Yeah. So I basically showed up. There actually wasn't a job at the Environmental Quality Board. I just thought, I found out that they were running this thing called the Sustainable <laughs> Development. They had this thing that was launched by the governor at the time called the Sustainable Development Initiative. And I was like, damn, that's exactly what I want to do. So I found out who was running that thing. It turned out to be a guy named John Wells. And I was like, hey, John, would you have coffee with me? We go. We have coffee. We hit it off. I found out, find out all about the job. And I, didn't, I don't think I did this right on the spot, but I met him another time. And I said, look, I've got a proposition for you. I'm living in my parents' basement, so I'm set for the time being. <laughs> I will work for you for three months for free. You don't have to pay me a dime. I'll work for you for three months for free. Uh, on one on on the condition that at the end of that three months, and I know you can't guarantee a job, but at the end of that three months, if I have made myself as indispensable as I'm going to try to make myself, you will agree to at least explore creating a job for me. Wow, what initiative! And he was like, "Okay, you're on, you're on." <laughs> so so I started. So my first three months working for the Environmental Quality Board was was totally for free. It was the summer of 1993. I had finished graduate school. I'd moved back to the Twin Cities. You know, the rest is kind of history. At the end of that three months, and I had worked very hard to make myself totally indispensable, and they needed the help, genuinely needed the help. Hmm. They created a job for me when I spent the next 10 years there. What a story. Oh, man. Right. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Uh, here's the advice I would give to my 20-year-old self. This has sort of been an Achilles heel for me my whole life. I would take more careful note of all the people I met along the way and stay in touch with them over that span of time. And I mean that both like for personal reasons, but also for professional reasons. And I still don't do it as well as I should, but I guess my main insight there to my 20-year-old self is that I would have said, Rolf, <laughs> you're 20. You are going to meet an extraordinary number of people, you know, in the next 33 years. That's a rich, rich network of people. You're not going to hit it off with everybody. and Maybe you don't keep in touch with every single person. But if I had kept more careful track, let's say, of all the people I'd met, I feel like I would have, I don't know that it would have changed the course of my life, but I... You just never know who is going to be helpful to you or who you might be helpful to. Hmm. It, it's just this, you know, you just think about this ever-expanding network of human relationships that you could maintain if you were a little more conscious about the fact that that was happening in your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I like it. As it, as it is, I just sort of coasted and I met awesome people, but I didn't necessarily pay as close attention as I might if I had it to do over. Would that just be a matter of 
keeping contact information written down or yeah. like tossing an email chain back and forth every once in a while? Yeah, I mean, these days it could happen in, in many respects much more easily than yeah. it would have for me as a 20-year-old because the internet didn't even exist. Yeah. I, I do mean really as, as pedestrian as it sounds. I mean just literally, basically, name, address, phone number, nowadays, email, maybe you... I don't know if people even use Facebook anymore, but but you know what I'm saying. It, just keeping a running... It sounds a little cold to call it a database, but you know what I'm saying. No, that's a like good Just term. keep track of, of who you've met and mm. what you're... Maybe even almost like a personal diary. Like you, you were talking to me about people you met when you were in... Was it northern Spain or wherever on the beach? Yeah, Santander, Santander. northern Spain. So that's a perfect example. I mean, yeah. I, like you, I traveled in Europe. I met yeah, all I'm kinds of cool people. Still in touch with that restaurant. But I, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly tell you right now you know, who all I met or where they are now. Or, mm. I don't know. That's, just, that's one thing that I, would have done, that I would have done differently. Awesome. Most gifted books. What books have you given away the most over the years, shared the most, mm. felt you needed to share? Wow. Any favorites topping the list? Well, I've been a little stingy on the book sharing front <laughs> in terms of actually physically giving people books, but the one, but it's easy for me to pick the book that was the most transformative for me in terms of the way I see, in terms of um, helping me know what, how I wanted to spend my life and what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's a book called The Ecology of Commerce by a guy named Paul Hawken, probably written in 1993, I'd guess. It ha- I think it has a conch shell on the cover. Huh. It's still the single most influential book I've read. There's another one called, I think it's just called Ishmael, that's in a similar vein, and it's it's got a very funky premise, which is going to sound a little out there, but it's actually a remarkable book. It's a conversation, I think, if I'm remembering right, it's been a long time since I've read it, it's a conversation between a man and a gorilla. <laughs> oh, uh, it's a good read. I'll find a copy of both. Ishmael. Who in the Twin Cities community are you impressed by, whether that's an organization, an artist, whoever comes to mind? Well, and this is, I'm, I'm biased here. I'm, I'm really impressed by, I wouldn't even say it's one person, this, this, the coalition that I'm thinking of. There's a relatively new coalition that's formed in the Twin Cities that has, and it sounds like sort of an oxymoronic title, but it's called the Minnesota Sustainable Growth Coalition. Hmm. And it's a group of probably 25 or 30 very large companies who have come together with the stated purpose of figuring out what a circular economy looks like, much like I described earlier. In other words, how might we produce and consume in a way that has us operating within the, the way natural systems work? which I think is an incredible mission to have publicly hmm. like that. It's all companies you'd recognize, 3M and Target and Best Buy and Ecolab and General Mills. Wow. I, I was not a, expecting that. It's kind of a who's who, hmm. right? I know. That's part of what I think is so cool about it is you're like, really? I'm incredibly impressed by that coalition. And they're new, so they don't have a huge track record yet. But hmm. they are hard at figuring that out. And they have prioritized renewable energy. So they have a stated goal of, of 100% renewable energy, which isn't going to happen, you know, next Tuesday. But even stating that as the thing we're aiming for, 
strikes me as pretty creep a little closer and closer all the pretty time. Extraordinary. Yeah. So that's one thing that I'm I'm super impressed by. Great. Yeah. Finally, if people want to learn more about you or your organization, is there any place that we can send them to uh, to connect? They should absolutely go to betterenergy.org. Betterenergy.org, and you can read all about the Great Plains Institute. There's a snappy little four-minute video that tells you, so if you're not a reader, you just want to watch or listen some more, there's a four-minute video on our site that tells you what on earth GPI does if I have failed in, uh, in explaining that in this podcast i think we got it covered but if anyone wants a refresher i can link to that in the show notes and rolf thanks for the time it's been fun yeah i'm sure i'll see you around okay take care chance you heard him everybody head on over to betterenergy.org to learn more about gpi and the work that rolf is doing in continuing with last episode's theme of posing a short homework assignment following the episode i'm going to suggest that If there's an issue you care strongly about within your community, write to a representative. It could take 10 minutes. Get it down on paper, throw it in an envelope, stick a stamp on it, drop it in a post box. It's as simple as that. I'll be doing it too, and I'll let you know what I come up with. All right, if you've been enjoying or making use of this podcast, there are a number of ways you can support it. The best things to do would be to talk about it to your friends, your family, your co-workers. Send everyone to www.chancebychance.com. And then I would say, visit the site yourself. There's a newsletter you can sign up for on the bottom of the homepage and get every episode plus more delivered to your inbox the day it's released. You can uh, visit the support page, link to Patreon, and donate per episode. You can also leave me a rating or review on iTunes. It helps other listeners find the show. There's links to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on the bottom of every website page there. Until next time, thank you for listening.